Hello, welcome again to Sports and Lot. Going through the week's sports news as ever. If you hit subscribe, we land in your feeds automatically. And always welcome to hear your views at Sport and Lots on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Joining me, Rob Harris from Sky News as ever, Martin Ziegler from the Times, and Tarek Panja from the New York Times. And we look good get together this week when we attended the Premier League's Hall of Fame evening. Yeah, quite a quite a glitzy affair, wasn't it? Actually, some uh, some stars from the world of. Uh, screen as well as football, I think. Did I see Idris Elba there? Uh, you, you may have done. Um, I also saw someone with a spectacular shimmering blazer, Ziggs. Um, and I was told that there's a chap called Ranveer Singh, a huge Bollywood star who recently played Kapil Dev, famous Indian cricket captain. Different sport, though. Um, but it just tells you the, the, the reach of the Premier League that this kind of international audience, these characters are coming to these events. Yeah, he was at Arsenal's game against Chelsea. Big Arsenal fan, apparently. And perhaps tells you how big he is that the Olympics website has even written about his love for Arsenal attending this game. So even the IOC are wanting to sort of latch on some of, some of that Bollywood and Premier League fame as well. Yeah, for the Premier League, it's that, it's that audience um, that they're trying to reach, isn't it? The internationalisation of of English football. And, and to be honest, that event kind of highlighted that there were people from all over the place. My surprise people, it wasn't some huge event. It wasn't some huge red carpet, hundreds and hundreds of people there. It was actually quite a small, low-key event, largely actually about honouring the players, particularly Rio Ferdinand, surrounded by his family there. Arsene Wenger was also uh, receiving his entry into the Hall of Fame. Tony Adams couldn't make it. Uh, Alex Ferguson also couldn't. But actually seemed quite focused on the players and the families rather than a sort of celebration of the Premier League and the sort of leadership in some ways. We might see sometimes at these sports events. Yeah, I was quite... Because uh, I, you know, I didn't really know what to expect when we turned up. Um, and actually, it was quite a sort of, as you say, a sort of close-knit, not that many people there. Um, not a sort of... You, know, you could... Everyone free to mingle and, and chat. And um, yeah, it was really nice. And it's not like we're always completely favourable towards everything the Premier League do in, in your writing. No, 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 exactly. I think we are um, as, as scrutineering as, as, as anybody else, aren't we? You know, we look at everything the Premier League does uh, as we do with all the other sports organisations. And, you know, we often focus on the sports leaders and how they act, particularly on this pod with bosses of sports. Richard Masters, the Premier League Chief Executive, was the one who handed over these Hall of Fame medallions, but actually didn't make himself front and centre. He was almost very low-key compared to some of the way we see sports leaders are. And some could say, actually, you, meet, you need a more visible role or actually could welcome that sort of not putting yourself at the heart of things. It's not, it's not his style, though, is it? As long as Richard Masters has been the Premier League Chief Executive, he's not been someone who has craved the spotlight. I mean, he's someone who has come from within the organisation, an internal figure. Remember how he, he kind of got the job. I think, to be honest with you, there are times where you have to be visible and you have to be front and centre. But I think on this occasion, it was about the the players and the coaches who are going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, not not an administrator. I think quite correctly, he managed to, to, to sort of keep himself in the background. Funny, actually, because Gianni Infantino, he, he was very much in the background in his UEFA days, wasn't he? Um, it's only really when he became FIFA president that he sort of 
was thrust or thrust himself into this sort of um, position of, uh, you know, always, um, you know, being front and centre of what FIFA are doing. Um, maybe maybe you have to do that as a FIFA president, but it certainly wasn't like that in his way for days. Yeah, but it's, it's a different role, isn't it? This is like a, a chief executive officer of a company. Like if you were to do apples and apples, I suppose Fatma Samura, the, the, the Secretary General, the CEO of, of FIFA, was probably the the person who would, I guess, from a titular point of view, but Gianni has sort of amassed so much power. He's sort of um, a, a president and a chief executive, an executive president, and all that light is shining on him. And I suppose that's how he wants it. Which is always the discussion about where Fatma Samora is. She's not put in front of the media very often. And in this very week, it's been one when Gianni Infantino has put himself right front and centre, back into the spotlight at all places, while on a visit to the World Trade Organization. We did the first step at FIFA by increasing significantly the prize money, and our objective is to reach the equal pay uh, uh, situation in the next World Cup. But broadcasters, especially public broadcasters, funded by taxpayers' money, should put uh, their action behind their words because they rightfully criticize uh, football organizations or other sports organizations uh, for uh, uh, not paying equally women um, and men or not having the same prize money. Well, we need to generate these revenues and they should help us because otherwise we'll simply not sell these rights at these undervalued prices to them. And, uh, well, the European public will not be able to watch the Women's World Cup, which after the success of the last tournament in France, after the success of the Euro, would be really, really a pity. He, not for the first time, um, decided to make a big deal of the fact that uh, the the broadcasters in the the five main European countries um, are not paying enough for the Women's World Cup rights. And he raised a possibility of a blackout in UK, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, if the broadcasters do not up the amount they're, they're, they're willing to spend. He said between one, they're only offering between $1 million and $10 million. Compared to $100 million or $200 million for the uh, Men's World Cup. If we just sort of strip back what Infantino said here, we're talking about the biggest World Cup ever, the 32 teams, first time in the women's competition. And he's telling players of five teams at least, you won't be seen in your home nations. This is the big growth opportunity. By the way, we're not going to show you. It just seems implausible that would even happen, particularly as FIFA has its own FIFA Plus streaming platform now anyway. It's, it's not going to happen. That, and that's the kind of obvious thing as well. This is why this kind of saber-rattling and that language, it just seems silly. Look at the mission of FIFA when it comes to football, and particularly women's football. It's to grow the game and grow interest in the game. Even if you put it on FIFA Plus or YouTube, you're going to lose millions of potential viewers, potential fans, kids who are going to follow these um, teams, potentially future players. The, the, these games, more than any, have to be on the the major broadcasters. That audience disappears if they're not there. Um, and it's the third time he's done this. He did it in Kigali. He did it at the draw. Um, and he's saying, look, well, FIFA is putting its money where the mouth, where its mouth is. It said, we've increased the prize money threefold. We're going to try and equalise it by the time the next World Cup comes. Why are public broadcasters not doing it? And the re- Well, to be honest with you, FIFA's reason to be is to grow football. Public broadcasters have all 
manner of different tasks, right? It's not solely focused on growing the women's game. And if you look at England, the BBC has done a huge amount. Uh, I was actually quite surprised that he included the UK in the... Uh, uh, because they're offering a, you know, something around, BBC and ITV, around £9 million, which is, I mean, a lot more than, for example, I think Italy are, only, are offering £800,000, you know, a million dollars. So a lot more, you know, 10 times, more than 10 times that they are offering. So... Um, I was slightly surprised that he included them, but on the other hand, um, you know, maybe he thinks he can squeeze a little bit more money out, or maybe he's a bit unhappy with with um, the British broadcasters anyway. Um, perhaps they, perhaps he blames them for the uh, the the leak where it was revealed that part of FIFA's requirements for the Men's World Cup for broadcasters was that they um, they showed. Footage of an appearance of of him at every match, at least once. Well, and the way the crown jewels listings work on this weekend of the coronation are the fact actually the government prescribed the Women's World Cup as one of those events that should be on free-to-air television. So very much FIFA left negotiating with the public service broadcasters. And when we look at this as an event, it's in Australia and New Zealand, so that means the game's European time are in the morning rather than those prime time slots. So rather than actually having those big audiences you'd get in the evenings, they're going to be in the mornings. If a World Cup or Euros is in the evening, they're taking the prime time slots that are normally uh, with for scripted drama. So you spend a lot of money getting those big shows or big reality contests that cost quite a bit of money, bring a lot of advertising in. And you know for several weeks of a major tournament in the summer in the evenings you won't need that at all or in the winter in the Qatar 2022 case but this women's world cup replaces the cheaper morning output and you're still left with those evenings to fill through July and into August so there are numbers behind this and if you look in the UK ITV have got shareholders to respond to and the BBC have got the public funds that they have to account for. Absolutely I'm uh, Rob are you saying um Cash in the Attic or Homes on the Hammer isn't a high-value television. Um, the the other point you made, Rob, um, is that there's 64 games this time round. There's going to be a lot of lot of teams that haven't played at this level. I think the demand for watching games that don't feature the home nations in, in these markets are, are going to be quite low, to be honest with you. The, the, the women's football is enjoying this this kind of rapid rise. But I think the marginal game is still not going to draw in these massive audiences. And that will take some time. Yeah, I think especially in the group stages, I think that's right. Let's remember, of course, FIFA only started the Women's World Cup in 1991. The Men's World Cup started in 1930. So FIFA as an organisation is behind in the growth of the women's game, didn't invest enough for a long enough time, which has a knock-on effect for the competitive balance. And actually, it's taking time to actually get a breadth of teams who can compete on the world stage enough for a 32-team competition. And of course, remembering that countries like England, women's football was banned for 50 years until the early 70s. So at the heart of Infantino's criticism, really, is the fact that he believes people aren't showing perhaps enough respect for women's football. They're not putting enough money in, the broadcasters, the sponsors. Yet, let's sort of look at FIFA's own commitment to the women's game. Gianni Fantino has been announcing plans almost every year for about five years for a Women's Club World Cup. 
but still has never launched it. Yet in that time, he's launched not only a new expanded men's club World Cup, but also a secondary club competition as well. I do actually agree with him around about you know, the, the Italians and the Germans if they're only offering a million dollars. I do think that is pathetic. It's the first time um, these rights have been unbundled and sold separately for the first time. Previously, Women's World Cups have been just handed over to the broadcasters who own the Men's World Cup rights. This is the first time this market has been tested. And um, I guess for Europe, unfortunately, this is a tournament that's being played on the other side of the world. And as Rob said, um, these hours when there isn't peak viewing figures... Um, what the price is and what the correct price is, I guess we'll see. Um, and we should get some idea of what the audience is when, when the actual tournament begins. It's still in a massive growth phase, isn't it? Women's football and, and, and World Cups. Yes, it's the biggest Women's World Cup ever. But, you know, what does that mean when it comes to audiences? And what does that look like? I think there is a growth phase. It's almost like a, it's almost like a startup. If you think about all that... Um, energy that's only in the last few years we've, we've seen this and let's remember the men's world cup has only been that far east once to japan and south korea in 2002 so in terms of the time zone it's something that men's football hasn't even experienced having to sell the rights for a tournament in australia and new zealand and this was a decision by the fifa council in 2020 to award the tournaments to australia and new zealand and they did prepare bid inspection report. So after Gianni Infantino made these comments this week, I went back through the inspection reports and found what they said. And it did warn of a relative fall in audiences that could be experienced in Europe if the tournament was awarded to Australia and New Zealand. And it also went further. It said the strong TV potential in the Asian markets combined with additional domestic media sales opportunities helps offset an expected relative fall in European audiences. So before the council voted, the report prepared for the FIFA administration was saying, take into consideration the fact you could have issues with European audiences. Uh, in the end, Australia and New Zealand did still beat the Columbia bid. Also, I guess the, the, the question about money is FIFA is a, a global government body. It pulls all this, all this cash in. In Kigali at the FIFA Congress in March, FIFA estimated, Gianni said, uh, you know, $11 billion for the next four-year cycle, $4 billion in, in reserves. So, you know, for all those additional costs and some of those promises, I think FIFA has enough money in the bank um, and potential revenue to, to make up um, any, any shortfall. Um, and I think, you know, he could still meet these promises that he's been making to, to women's football through FIFA's own reserves, I guess. Because actually it's about particularly getting cash into governing bodies to get more coaches, more technical standards being raised. That leads to a better sort of quality and depth of players throughout youth groups as well, which actually increases the quality throughout the system. And if we just look at Gianni Infantino's own commitment to growing the women's game, he has been talking every year for five years or so about having a women's club World Cup. But he's been re-announcing that policy very often without actually yet presenting a plan for this new competition. And unlike the men's game, there is actually more space in the calendar for a uh, Club World Cup. But it's still never been 
delivered. And yet in the same time in recent years, Gianni Fantino has managed to introduce a new men's club World Cup with 32 teams every four years and also a secondary competition as well. The Women's Champions League is getting, is now getting really sort of quite big, isn't it? Um, But it's making that leap, isn't it? I think European teams are strong. Are they, are the, is the rest of the world, I mean, perhaps you could say that with men's football as well. Um, you obviously looking at American and, and Canadian club teams are going to be strong as well. But um, beyond that, is there going to be a, you know enough strength for a Women's World Cup? Maybe that's what they're looking at. And looking at Gianni Fantino's priorities, he spent a lot of time in Qatar ahead of the Men's World Cup. But I can't actually find he's been to Australia where the Women's World Cup final will be staged since they won the bid. Perhaps interest, perhaps interest in focus as well, as you said, he's been very busy um, politically rallying the support for the for the um, election, which he was the only candidate. Obviously, um, the the um, expansion of the Club World Cup for men went through. I mean, this raises the question. This is like a, a, a you know a bigger question for another debate in tennis, for example. There's the you know WTA women's tennis is is is, is handled by a separate body that. 100% focuses and cares for that one product, you know, this the women's tennis. And it does, you know, I've often thought this, to be honest, you know, whether women's football could be spin out, spun out of FIFA in Zurich in another office run by people who absolutely care and love that sport, want to grow it. Um, and there's been talk, well, how are they going to afford it? And you know, there's other ways, you know, obviously... There could be a you know a charge on FIFA twenty to thirty percent of its revenue could be just like handed over for a you know a couple of decades in light of the massive under investment of of women's football and and then allow people who who are focused on this and dedicated to grow the game at the moment what you see is this secondary focus and women's football seems to be mapped on the hundred plus year men's football game. Does it have to be exactly the same structure? Does it have to be exactly the same? I don't think these conversations are taking place because the people who run it are the people who run men's football. And we see particularly with a spate of things like ACL injuries amongst uh, female players, how there are very specific needs also for the women's game to investigate things on sports science and, and health even. There isn't just a one game fits all strategy. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps there might be one reason why Gianni Fantino is less keen to go to visit those World Cup hosts is the fact they've caused him a bit of bother in recent months because the backlash against a Visit Saudi sponsorship of the Women's World Cup came from the federations of Australia and New Zealand until Gianni Fantino said they wouldn't be a backer of the tournament in the end. But Visit Saudi still do have a very high profile backer, the ambassador Lionel Messi, who went there on Monday. Did Paris Saint-Germain know he was going? Was he allowed to go? They think not, and that's why he's had a two-week suspension. Yeah, he's on his way out. Um, but he, he, you know, he was uh, something like, is it 20, 21 million pounds, 25 million euros he has, a year he gets from his visit Saudi thing? So he, he probably needed to uh, pop over there to, just to pose for some pictures. And it, maybe he realised it was the end of the road anyway at, at PSG it was time for was going to move, so he just thought, "What the hell? Let's let's do it." Um, but yeah, it looks like um, I wonder. It sounds like he, he's had a, a big offer now to go there to play his club football. Um, yeah, huge yeah. amount of money. Do you, do you think that's happening? Going to happen? Messi and Ronaldo both in Saudi Arabia. 
it, it might do. I mean, he's ended up, it would be moving from one um, golf owner to another. Don't forget, Qatar is the owner of Paris Saint-Germain. And, 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 you know, next door to Saudi Arabia, this is where the, the, the money is. It, it feels very unromantic, the last, if, he, if he's gone to PSG and then to Saudi Arabia. But I guess the world is a bit different from how, you know, one likes to think of what football is. But the, the, the whole point of that transfer and this mess, messy end, uh, excuse the pun, it, it was, um, it was always a transactional relationship, wasn't it? He's gone to... PSG, the, they were willing to pay him all of this money. He, he, you know, that teary exit he had from Barcelona, you won't see that. He, he went there for a reason. They got what they needed out of him. A couple of years, they, they had him wearing their shirts. Uh, particularly, he was owned by Qatar the year that Qatar hosted the World Cup. The Emir of Qatar put that cloak, that bisht on him just before he lifted the World Cup. Just seems like the end of a, a business transaction. Very unsentimental, to be honest, on on both sides. He he leaves even richer than he was before, and 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 they they move on. To be honest, it didn't look like they wanted to re-sign him. It didn't look like he wanted to stay, and and this is how it's sort of ended. It's quite quite sad, really, because he's arguably the greatest player to have played football. And when we look at the whole qatari transformation of psg in the last 12 years there is still that uncomfortable relationship between groups of the fans and the ownership say in contrast to manchester city where we never see any sort of real backlash against the abu dhabi ownership although actually in the last couple of weeks some dissent over increases in ticket prices but the ultras at psg really do dissent despite the fact they win the french title con- consistently yeah they were furious this week so it was a real terrible week for the people who run PSG. You had the, obviously the Messi headlines, skipping training and going to Saudi Arabia. And then like within 24 hours, you see groups of ultra supporters marching on the training ground and the stadium, chanting not just against Messi, but against a coach, Gaultier, against um, Neymar, against Marco Verratti, against Nasser Al-Khalifi, PSG's chairman, the, the, the Qatar's representative essentially in, in, in club football. And even showing up outside Neymar's house, um, asking for him to, you know, pack his bags as well and, and join them. It's it's all a bit. It's just all a bit. It just feels tawdry and a bit sad, really. All this grub, grubbiness, all of this money poured in, no heart, no emotion. I suppose the only emotion we see from these angry fans. I mean, Messi himself has obviously done nothing wrong. Barcelona couldn't afford to keep him. He just went to a new club. PSG were offering the cash. And he went there. I mean, you could obviously argue on, you know, the human rights question, should it be the face of Saudi tourism? What do you think it says about um, they've spent all of this money? They've won, I think, nine titles in 11 years or some, something like that. And these fans are so unhappy. What is the point of all of this if, if there's such a negativity around this football club? where they've bought these people, these success, it, the, the, the artificiality might, might be a factor in, in this. The, the fans and the club just do not seem connected in any way. What, what do you think the point of all of this was? And does it work? I mean, there is a very strong ultra element, isn't there, um, with PSG? So there are sort of, you know, a particular group of fans who are, who are particularly sort of passionate and... Um, and yeah, you you can say they're they're unhappy because uh, who is more unhappy that PSG haven't won the Champions League, the ultras or or the Qatari owners? Probably equal. 
Yeah, but you know, on the on the other hand, on the other hand, on the other hand, those ultras wouldn't have been anywhere near the 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 winning the Champions League before the Qatari ownership. That's the question I ask. Like, this just seems a passionless marriage, really. Like these people have come in, given them success they've never had before. But equally, these fans perhaps don't want to win like this, or don't want players who aren't, as far as they're saying, aren't trying. And the word from um, the, the fans, there was a statement saying, you know, parasites collecting money. It, to me, this feels like a, a moment in football. Supporters, yes, I suppose, like to win things, but maybe not not just this kind of cosmetic, artificial brand project that that, that they've had installed on them. Yeah, I mean, actually, I do think it will be an eye-opener um, for the owners because that, you know... What they want is for the fans to sort of, you know, praise them a bit like, you know, the Newcastle fans do with, with the Saudis. You know, that couldn't have been, that could have gone better in terms of what Saudi Arabia wanted, could it? With the sort of many Newcastle fans embracing the Saudis. So, um, yeah, so when you have fans turning against you, the owners, then that, as you say, that's that, that will be something which I think will perhaps have shocked them. And is it a sense they have a lack of connection with the team? Would they prefer more homegrown, more Parisian players? Uh, Tarek, you've been taking a look at the other Paris team recently, Paris FC, who actually also have golf ownership. Oh, yeah, well, they're, they're mainly owned um, 52% by a guy called Pierre Ferracci, a French businessman, but he's been selling stock to minority investors, among them the state of Bahrain to try and boost the club. I mean, they play in the second division, so the nearest to PSG um, in terms of league standings. But, you know, it's a real far cry. Um, about 3,000 fans show up at, at, at a stadium they rent from 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 the, the city. Um, but the project is based on, on um, something Paris has in abundance, young talent. More players come from the Paris region than anywhere in the world, um, maybe barring Sao Paulo. So they, they want to try and build a team, um, you know, connected to that. But the owner was saying, here's the, here's the deal. French people, particularly Parisians, they don't really like football or going to the stadium that much. They'll go and watch a winning team. That connection that exists in teams in like other capitals, other countries, isn't isn't there in, in, in Paris, um, he was saying. Guys, do you think... Um, if any of these Qataris at PSG are having a second thought, they might have a maybe their other team if they if they manage to pull it off. Maybe um, they might just go and own Manchester United now. I guess that that's still rumbling along. And they have got the dispute in Paris with the mayor over the expansion of the Parc de Princes. They're being denied that ability to sort of build a bigger stadium. And underlying this with PSG and Nasser Al Khalifi is the fact that you've still got those simmering Saudi-Qatari tensions. Yes, the boycott of Qatar was lifted just over two years ago, but you've still got the Todd streaming service, which is part of BN, being blocked, don't we, in Saudi? Of course, that has the same ownership, uh, ultimately, as PSG. Yeah, there's still there's still the rivalries. I mean, not it's not quite as intense as the Qatar-UAE rivalry, which is still really, really sort of um, strong and... Quite bitter, I think. This is a moment to talk, you know, think about. We've talked about it here. This this state ownership. Last week we mentioned what Christian Perslow said. These various states. Christian Perslow, the the Aston Villa 
chief executive talking about football being a you know um a competition among nation states this week has shown you know maybe that's not a great idea perhaps well moving away from the world of football something that we talked a lot about recently we constantly has new developments is the issue of the participation of trans women in sports and a backlash in cycling this week after the victory for Austin Killips in a UCI event in New Mexico. And it has sparked an immediate move by the UCI, world governing body. Yeah, after Austin Killips' victory in the Tour de Gila, um, there's an immediate sort of outpouring of criticism, a lot coming from former cyclists, a couple of female Olympic cyclists speaking out, uh, uh, criticising the UCI for not protecting women's sport. Um, The UCI defended its policy because it it, it has reduced the testosterone levels in the the last year down to 2.5 nanomoles per litre. And it said it it defended its policy. It was in favour of inclusion, stands by them. 24 hours later, put out a lengthy statement at the bottom of which was saying, oh, yes, we, we, the management committee has decided we are going to review the policy after all. Um, a decision will be taken in August and we are going to listen to female riders as well as um, promoting inclusivity. So it does look like they're heading down the road of world athletics, world swimming. Um, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if we, we see a, a situation in August where they are, if you've gone through male puberty, you cannot race in a women's event. Talk about burying the lead there, Martin, right at the end of the press release. That just shows how, how sensitive all these sports bodies are to, to this issue. Um, you know, the World Athletics was pretty quick and direct with its um, policy. You get a sense that that's going to be followed, especially when you see events like what happened in, in, in Mexico there and the, and the backlash from the, the female riders in it. Um, what about this this issue of um, an open category replacing men's? I was reading about that somewhere. Other sports are doing that, aren't they? So that is something which British Triathlon has done, for example, and British Cycling is probably going to do that at the end of this month as well. That, that looks like the direction of travel there. World Swimming and World Athletics haven't done that yet. They haven't got an open category. Um, I think they, they're looking at it, but they haven't gone there yet. So it'll be interesting to see if, if cycling has an open category and a protected female category. Um, but, we, yeah, we're not there yet. Also, British rowing is is looking at, at what it's going to do because world rowing, they also allow transgender women to participate um, with reduced testosterone. British rowing, they're going to decide on May the 22nd. There's a consultation exercise going until May the 12th. Um, but interestingly, one of the, I've <clears throat> found out one of the one of the things which people who do want to have an open category are, are pushing. They're, they're highlighting how <clears throat> back in 2008, the, the, the British women's quad skulls, including Dame Catherine Granger, um, they were seen as the, the, the best team in the world, the best quad in the world. And before the Beijing Olympics, to get some sort of race practice, they entered the, the men's Marley Regatta. And they were 
comprehensively beaten by sort of very standard men's team. For example, I think they, they finished below Cardiff University, Newcastle University, basically students who aren't who are in no way at all professional or, or, or elite comfortably beat the women's team. So just highlighting the physical differences in rowing between men and women. And it, that is, it is particularly a sport where you would say the, the male dominance is, is, is come, comes forth very, very obviously. And at the heart of this is balancing out the rights for competitive fairness and transgender people who face discrimination in wider society too. Yeah, you know, this this debate, as we've seen over the, you know, nearly two years we've been doing this, is is, is just ever present. I think, you know, it'd be interesting if we see it at the World Cup, the Women's World Cup, which we talked about earlier in the pod um, in Australia and New Zealand. I kind of asked FIFA about this and they, they say, you know, they're, they're on a case-by-case basis. So it feels um, on that side quite a, um, I guess, untransparent process in a sense in terms of um, deciding who can play and who, who can't. Uh, the, the Tokyo Olympics in the football competition, there was um, a transgender athlete. It was a player for the Canadian women's team who um, declared themselves non-binary. Um, and this player called Quinn, I think, who played for Canada, um, and that, I think, was the first instance of someone, um, I guess, playing under a different gender uh, than, than, than women, say, in, in women's football at that, at that level. And this is an issue that will build up and that will be ahead of the Paris Olympics and the IOC themselves have passed it on to the individual sports to deal with. Yeah, the, the IOC, they've sort of basically been shied away from taking that they've been very very sort of undefinitive they've just had some general guidelines about testosterone levels which they recommended and the sports themselves they've taken the steps on this but just to say rob you're right for an individual athlete who's transitioned it's really really um painful i'm sure and difficult for them and it is in a way it's a sort of it's horrible. It's come down to a sort of culture war, and it, it, it and people sort of jumping up and down, screaming. I don't think that helps um, at all. But I, I do think there are very important issues that the sports mostly have have, have dealt with pretty um, sensitively. Um, but I think yeah, the, the whole cultural aspect of it does leave a bad taste in the mouth. Well, it's a question of leadership, isn't it? Of course. These are sensitive issues, um, but it's for these sports leaders not to pass the buck along. This this is why you take a leadership role, right? Not just to hand out gold medals and trophies. These sensitive issues are, are things you have to deal with. Um, and in this case, there's you can't please everyone. There's just no way of creating a situation where everyone's going to be happy. Someone's going to lose here, and it's sad. But you know, it, it's it's complex. It just but it requires people to be clear-eyed, doesn't it? Rather than, um, you mentioned the IOC moving this along. Um, but the IOC tends tends to do this. It's often when it, when it comes to the crunch saying, you know, we're, we're passing that, that along. And it's not just the eligibility of transgender athletes in the Olympics and sport more widely that's 
facing sport ahead of Paris 2024, but also the participation of Russian and Belarusian athletes with an ongoing backlash against them appearing as neutrals. Yeah, that that was the position the IOC seems to want, uh, as they kind of communicated a few weeks ago, if they can not not be part of a team, but be um, at the games as neutrals, which led to that massive backlash from a number of sports ministries. But they have found support from what's becoming, you know, often a likely source of support whenever the IOC is under pressure from its athletes committee. This is this group of athletes that is working under the IOC umbrella, so not really independent of it. And and again, they've come to the rescue, if you want. You've had a, a slew of them now repeat the IOC lines. We had Martin Focard, the, the famous French biathlete, multiple gold medalist. He, he said recently, I know it may be difficult to understand the position I take. I understand that. I'm not blind. But my opinion is what is because of my understanding of the Olympic values? So he's saying that, you know, he backs the IOC because of something called the Olympic values. Um, and then you had Maya Washlovska, another member of that commission. If we display, if we disqualify Russia and Bel- Belarus athletes, what about other nations? There are lots of other conflicts in the world. Don't forget, that's after the IOC released that that statement that said there's 70 conflicts in the world. So this is as much about owning narrative, it seems, at the moment than, than coming up with a decision. It's sort of building up to something that the IOC clearly wants. Been other developments as well, Russia-related this week. Um, Alicia Usmanov, the, uh, the, the oligarch, former Arsenal shareholder, who sort of his companies or companies he was shareholder in, um, bankrolled Everton for a long time. It's a... The Guardian discovered that actually six months before he was sanctioned, he was um, uh, banned by the Home Office from entering the UK. And that actually had an interesting knock-on effect because um, the Premier League um, board were investigating his nephew being appointed to the Everton board um, in July 2021. did some due diligence, discovered this Home Office ruling against Usmanov and, and then made it clear to him that he wasn't allowed to loan any money to the club, which that could be converted into equity. Um, so it's um, partly explains perhaps why Everton are in... I mean, Everton say that they had no idea about this and there was, there was never any um, discussions about a loan from, from Usmanov to them. But uh, I'm sure if it had happened, it would have helped them out of their financial predicament. Any word from Usmanov himself? No, um, I did. I did have um, a communication from somebody who used to advise him from a public relations point of view, who I don't think still does, who just pointed out that the companies that did sponsor Everton, they weren't his companies, but that they were companies in which he held, held a showing a, sh- a shareholding but nothing actually from the man himself but um while I'm doing this I didn't actually notice a, that quite quite quietly last month the um the government announced sanctions against his company USM um Curzon Square Limited Hanley Limited um only this is only only came out in the middle of April um but yeah that they USM was the 
the Everton sponsor. Everton had already cut links with them after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And also the government is also um, has sanctioned two Cypriot guys, uh, Christopoulos Vassiliades and Dimitris Ioannidis. Now, Ioannidis has been the person who sort of enabled Roman Abramovich, created what the government calls a murky offshore structure to hide £600 million, £760 million of assets ahead of being sanctioned. And um, Vassiliades did the same for Usmanov, or similar, not, not quite as much money, but um, uh, created these sort of slightly, well, very opaque offshore structures to, to hide money, effectively. Funny, the UK government is saying that now, that these are murky structures. These people have been operating in the UK for what, two decades, 20 years, Bramwich owned Chelsea through these structures. They just found that out. Now they had to sanction him. You know, this is this is a, a type of business structure that has been welcomed into the UK for decades. Um, it's interesting that suddenly it becomes they've, they've always been murky, haven't they? These offshore structures, but but Britain has been quite open to doing business like that. So I think we should make that clear. Um, and as for Everton, Zeke's Mashiri, Fahad Mashiri, the owner, almost all his wealth is tied to that relationship with. Um, Alicia Usmanov um, and the company you mentioned there, USM, is the holding company for all of the companies set up by Usmanov. And it was already a red flag before the war why a holding company would be a sponsor of, like, of a football club. There is not going to be any branding opportunities or any direct consumer relationships for a holding company. But again, that was all waved through by the Premier League at that time. Suddenly, we are in a war with Ukraine. And and now all of these things that you could see were red flags in the past and ignored are, are suddenly, you know, seen as, um, you know, awful and we need to get rid of them. This this calls into question what happens in the future. Who, who's next? And it's about the re- proper regulation of English football, isn't it? One that will continue to occupy the Premier League and others in sport. All that about brings an end to this week's episode of Sports Unlock. Quite a variety there. Great stuff, guys. Good to be with you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. As ever, you can message us at Sport Unlocked on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. But for now, goodbye. (laughs) 